Wonder Things Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with C.W. Lassart. Literary Alchemists, I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Mike Luoma. And you've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is a chance for us to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own. Indeed, and in my never-ending quest to continue to have awesome co-hosts sitting by my side as we conduct those explorations into awesomeness. Mike Luoma, thank you so much, man. I'm delighted to have you sitting in the co-host chair for this particular jaunt into roundtable awesomeness. Thanks, man. It's great to be back, Dave. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. God, it was just, it seems like just a couple of weeks ago, doesn't it? It does. It was. <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll crack open one of those those funky Vermont hard cider things that you so enjoy. And, and let me regale you into the wonders of our guest for this episode of 20 Minutes With. May I? Oh, please do. Oh, you're a gentleman, sir. Now, Mike, there's a there's a saying in writerly circles that goes, writers write. In fact, mm. you know, I think you invoked that very phrase <laughs> at the end of our last workshop episode. I believe I did. I believe you did. Uh, and honestly, it's become a mantra for many of us as we stare into the abyss of a thousand distractions that are presented to us every day, knowing that we have stories clamoring behind our eyes for a chance to live. Now, it got me thinking about the idea of being a writer and how, for some of us, it's a choice. But for others, as is the case, I think, with our guest host, it was a calling. It was a primal, elemental impulse that would not be denied despite life's distractions and hardships. Now, the early signs of her writerly destiny were very clear to see. As soon as she was old enough to write words, she was writing stories, compiling chapbooks of stories she had heard, filtered through her young imagination, and then given to her mom as treasured gifts. Now, speculation is rife regarding the prospect of mom still having a few of these early literary gems and is only waiting for her daughter to become a megastar before whipping them out as blackmail material. Uh, honestly, I'm, I'm hoping that happens so that we can get a look at these things. <laughs> now, Mike, before we go any further, let me ask you something. Do you remember any of the stories your parents told you as a kid, like, like Babar or Curious George, any of those? I do remember some, but it's a dim, dim yeah, memory. I know. Me too. I, I I vaguely recall Babar. I think was one of the you know the elephant family. Uh, uh, that was a fun for me. Now for our guest host, as a child, her father read her stories of Edgar Allan Poe. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm sure there was other material included in her childhood repertoire, but it was the works of Poe that struck a chord, in particular, the fall of the House of Usher. Now, of all the stories that passed through the intricate net of her imagination, it was Poe that caught and tangled in her thoughts. So I think it's a safe bet she wasn't on the path to be writing Harlequin romances. <laughs> <laughs> she cites Robert McCammon and Stephen King as a couple of her most profound inspirations and the authors whose stories made her adolescence bearable. 
Uh, in fact, the first King book she read was Pet Cemetery, which was made possible through the intervention of this very cool uncle who assured her mother that our young guest host could handle the content. Now, clearly, mom had never actually read the book, which contains, in my opinion, the creepiest last line of a novel ever. And that year for Christmas, several of her uncle's Stephen King novels were bundled under the tree. Now, I think there's irony in play here, and let me explain why. When she was asked as a child what she wanted to be when she grew up, she would say, at the time, a veterinarian. Now, I'm not sure if that answer evolved before or after she read Pet Cemetery. And honestly, any further speculation down that road, I think, is very dangerous. <laughs> but regardless, another step was taken on the path to her writerly destiny. Now, her adolescence was fraught with angsty poetry. And honestly, who among us didn't indulge in some depressing, self-entitled poetic wankery at that age? And many awkward frustrations inherent in that stage in life when we realize that time is no longer our friend. And if we don't make some choices, life is going to make them for us. Now, she had some fabulous test scores and was poised for college. But wait, more irony... Her parents made too much money for her to qualify for student financial aid. So life took a detour and she took work in a factory to save money so she could fulfill that dream. Now, I feel like queuing up the theme from Flashdance at this point, you know, only with writing. <laughs> so it'll be like <laughs> writing dance or ink dance or something like that. I don't know. Now, I think we can all attest to the power that the demands of everyday life have in distracting us from the things that actually give us joy. The consequences of our choices can become this cascade of side roads and detours from the destiny that we dreamed of. Our guest host can certainly attest to that power, but as the years rolled by, there was always one constant, the stories. She was constantly writing, giving voice to tales bright and dark, and feeding the imagination factory of her creativity. Now we flash forward to 2010. Her writing had actually produced a novel, handwritten, no less, not even typed up. Now I think every writer can agree that the words, the end, are two of the most empowering and simultaneously terrifying words in the human language. Feeling like she needed some writerly street cred if she was going to be taken seriously by prospective publishers, our guest host decided that getting some short fiction out in the world would be just the thing. So, not at all certain if she had the chops for short fiction, she drafts a story and Googles for imprints she could submit to, settling at last on Dark Moon Books. Now, the story was Jack and Jill. And Dark Moon bought it and included it in the premier issue of their Dark Moon Digest. To this day, she contends she was very lucky. Personally, while there may have been some luck in play, I think this was the universe saying, about goddamn time. So, so she continued writing and submitting short fiction. And then she entered Cemetery Dance Publishing's Amateur Writing Contest. Now, keep in mind, Cemetery Dance has published Stephen King, Dean Kuntz, 
Clive Barker. This is a big deal. The story she entered was titled Dr. Johnson's Patient, and she maintains it was some of the most fun she's had writing a story. And (laughs) it won, along with two others. It was published in a limited edition chapbook CD that sadly is no longer in print. But that triumph was a stepping stone to another achievement, qualification as an affiliate member of the Horror Writers Association. She went on to have almost a dozen stories published by Dark Moon Books, Cemetery Dance Publications, Ellender Press, Evil Jester Press, Angelic Night Press, and more. And then there was this anthology that Dark Moon was pulling together called Ad Nauseam, 13 Tales of Extreme Horror. Now, our guest host submitted a story to the open call called Sister Alice's Suitor. And the editor of the anthology, Stan Swanson, really liked it. He asked if she could write another like it. So she wrote and submitted Simple Pleasures. At which point, get this, Stan closed the open call completely and transformed the entire anthology into a collection of our guest host's stories. Ad Nauseam, 13 Tales of Extreme Horror was released by Dark Moon Books in March of 2012. And most recently, she appeared alongside Mercedes Yardley, Stacey Turner, Allison Dixon, and S.R. Cambridge in Ragnarok Publications' Grim Mistresses Anthology, leading to her appearance on a fabulous episode of the Roundtable Dialogues discussing women in horror. Now, it's been a long road for her from listening to her father read Poe. And she's faced challenges that, quite honestly, would break a lesser person. But she has emerged from those trials stronger. A darkly radiant star weaving shadowy tales that terrorize and delight her readers. Ironically, she's still afraid of the dark. (laughs) She is the head verifier for the Bram Stoker Awards. She's a colossal story nerd who owns Harry Potter and Game of Thrones Carol, and has a decal of the Stark family crest on her van right next to one of Jason's hockey masks. She has an unhealthy fascination with egg rolls, and her most horrifying vision is a huge spider selling Avon wearing toe socks. Because, oh my God, toe socks. <laughs> Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the round table, our guest for this episode of 20 Minutes with C.W. Lassarte. We know her as Karen. Karen, ma'am, thank you so much. I'm so grateful that we were able to find the time to sit down and and chat some writerly craft with you, ma'am. We appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Do you feel stalked? Do you feel violated in I some know, way? Man, did you dig? You <laughs> <laughs> the and the toe socks surprised me. Yeah, yeah. See, it's all out there. The internet is my my tapestry from which I weave my dark, 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 <laughs> weavy things. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Any any egregious errors that need to be addressed before we roll on? Uh, not at all, sir, actually. You've awesome. done very well. <laughs> Excellent. My record stands intact. Now, before we dive into the 20 minutes with Karen, I want to ask, what is a head verifier for the Brahm Stoker Awards? Um, all right. Uh, what I do is we have a two-tier system for the Brahm Stoker Awards every year. Half of the preliminary ballot is made up by works recommended by the membership, and half is jury-selected. And 
when recommendations are made to the award or a jury selection is entered, I verify the work. I go through, I check the, the rules, I make sure that it fits all the qualifications. So honestly, a head verifier mainly sends and answers about 50,000 emails a year. <laughs> Holy crap. I would imagine you get swamped with stuff like that. Oh, well, you know, I'm pretty good at pacing myself. I do have an assistant that helps me. But, yeah, it's it's a very, very big job, but it's a very rewarding job. It helps me understand the awards better. It helps me feel like a part of the awards, which they're they're very important to me and to most of the membership. And from the time I knew about the Horror Writers Association, and I think I was a teenager when I heard about it, I wanted to be part of it. And to be able to give back in a big way really makes me feel good. That's huge. That's huge. Plus, you get first glimpse at all the possible Bram Stoker nominees, which is kind of badass, too. And like, I have email addresses for some people that <laughs> can't divulge, <laughs> but some idols. I've emailed some of my idols. That's pretty awesome. Holy crap. I have fangirl moments. I'm like, oh, you know, writing all professional, but in my office, I'm going, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, none of us have any idea what you're talking about. No, no, no. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad we've got somebody of your caliber uh, uh, in a position of responsibility there at the Brom Stoker Awards, Karen. That's awesome. Let's let's dive into this. I don't I don't want to waste any more time. Let's get into our 20 minutes with Karen C.W. Lassart. I'm just going to set the timer here. We'll ignore it because that's how we roll here at the round table. All right. Um, Karen, we've had several, uh, uh, I would say, dignitaries of the Horror Council here on the round table in the past. We've had uh, David Annandale. Uh, we've got we've had Paul Ellard Cooley. Uh, uh, and, and the discussion of horror is always a fascinating one. Uh, just because, you know, David Annandale uh, ascribes it more to a viral uh, uh, quality, that, that that its DNA can infect other genres uh, fairly gracefully. And you can have horror science fiction, horror romance, horror this. Horror can be uh, uh, an aspect of everything. So... I'm I'm really intrigued, and, and this really came up during your uh, your roundtable dialogues episode because your perspective on horror was fascinating. I want to lead off with a an explanation from you of what is extreme horror, uh, uh, and and let's let's start defining some of the shades and nuances of of the various vibes that horror undertakes as we move forward in this discussion. Okay, um, extreme horror, particularly to me. Uh, you have your atmospheric horror, your Mary Shelley, your beautiful Southern Gothic tales. But extreme horror asks for a little bit more. It's going to be more visceral. It's going to be more sex, more gore, more poop, you know, more, <laughs> you know, which then if you get too much poop, you branch off into bizarro. But I'm not in. I'm not in. <laughs> we don't go there. We don't go there. Okay. But, um, yeah, it's just it's everything amped up. It's less about atmosphere and more about being in your face. I enjoy reading extreme horror. I enjoy writing it. It's not all I do, but it does seem to be something I have a knack for. So publishers tend to ask me for more extreme horror. But I've written some very quiet, gentle stuff, too, that remains my favorite work. But I do tend to go more to, you know, if you're going for movies, you've got your really quiet 
psychological terrors, and then you've got your really in your face. I'm going to put this in your face. I'm going to be Jason with a hacksaw cutting, you know. I'm thinking saw. Yeah, and that's, yeah, saw to me is too much for horror. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's not that's not mine. But what's what's the nuance of extreme horror? I mean, I, I, I it, from the initial description, and, and I'm going to play a little devil's advocate here. It sounds like all you need is really good descriptive skills to tell an extreme horror tale. I just need to be able to describe viscera and poop and sex really well to pull that off. I know that's not true, but where where do you see the artistry in a tale like that being told? You definitely need that. But I think the artistry lies in being able to make people care for the characters still, because a lot of times in extreme horror, you have some pretty loathsome characters. And if you can make people care that this person's being hacked up or whatever's happening to them, if you can get them in the gut, maybe turn them on a little and still make them care that this is happening to this character, then I think you've succeeded at the story. Otherwise, you're just shocking for shock value. And that can be fun. Yeah. That story. How do you do that? How do you get a reader to, and I'm not implying that there's like a trick or a, a formula, but how do you as an author get a, a, a reader to invest and care in a character? Well, we sympathize with people we identify with. If I can give you something that touches you at home, that makes you think of you, something that is more common to your experience or even just, you know, it can be something as small as a mannerism that you yourself have that that's going to make you more invested because they become more of a person then. Whereas if the person's completely alien, if the character is nothing you can associate with, you're not going to sympathize with that. You really don't care what happens to them. That's how we handle all kinds of things in this world. We desensitize ourselves to other people's suffering if we try to not associate any qualities of ourselves in them, then we can ignore it. I can see that. Just to put it in your face and say, this person's you. This person is your sister. This person's your brother. This person is someone in your town. See, and, and that's interesting because I think we really kind of touched on the universality of storytelling in this exploration of this very niche aspect of horror because I think that what you're, what you're describing, Karen, is true of every story. That ultimately you must care about the protagonist. Otherwise, why am I reading the story? Absolutely. Even if you start out hating them. Um, George Martin, I think, does this better than anyone else. George Martin starts out and you absolutely loathe the character. There is not a redeeming quality to them. And then as you go, he subtly shifts it and shows you their point of view. And damn it, next thing you know, you don't even realize you like the character until they do something that makes you want to loathe them again. And then you're pissed at Martin. (laughs) You make the monster human. Jamie Lannister, I'm looking at you. Yes, Lannister, big time. He is probably the best example that Martin can do that like nobody else. Yeah, absolutely. I guess what I'm curious about is how do you go about building suspense in, in a horror story? How What tricks do you use to try to amp that up as the reader's getting into it? Uh, me personally, I think I like to go right in your face usually right away. Just snag you right at the beginning. And then back off a little bit and then work your way back up to the climax. That's just personally how I do most of my stories. I like a good hook because people have shorter attention spans these days. You know, I will sit and read a slow book and still enjoy it, but a lot of people won't anymore. And so I think you need to hook them and then you step back and then you draw them back in a little bit. 
And I really like cliffhanger endings. That's just kind of. Oh, really? A curse that kills everybody. Like, I want to know what happens. I'm like, I don't know. Figure it out. You know, that's that's on you. I don't know what happens. That's where it ends. Well, now, when you, when you say cliffhanger, you don't mean stay tuned next week. You oh, mean. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't really mean cliffhanger. I yeah. guess I'd like to. Abrupt I, endings that maybe don't resolve exactly. Yes. Okay. Yes. But I think that's what sh- horror short fiction is about. Novels should have a very definite conclusion, but short fiction and the horror world really needs to leave you wondering, which most of my friends who don't read horror but read my stuff, that's their biggest complaint. But the ones who read horror get it. You want to be, that final scene should be kind of cut. You know, it should be curtain falls before you know exactly how it's going to end. We'll be back with more of our conversation with C.W. Lessart after this brief promotional break. Even superheroes age. When Black Widow goes gray, Aquaman gets Alzheimer's, and someone's got to catheterize Wolverine, there's only one place capable of tending all their super senior needs. Elysian Springs, Adventures from the Nursing Home for Aging Superheroes is the first anthology from Pendragon Press, and we need your help to get it flying. What's in it for you? 10 tales from authors like Gail Z. Martin, T. Morris, and Jared Axelrod, plus a 10-page comic by artist Jason Strutz, all of them aggregated by Intergalactic Medicine Show assistant editor Lauren Scribe-Harris. And you won't want to miss the exclusive Kickstarter swag. From t-shirts and staff IDs to parking signs and personalized accident reports, let me tell you, it's awesome. So what are you waiting for? Head over to Kickstarter and support Elysian Springs, adventures from the nursing home for aging superheroes. We changed the Joker's bedpan so you don't have to. Now, let's get back to the conversation with C.W. Lassart. Now, Mike, when you when you write a short fiction, do you are you looking for for a tight tie off, or or do you like to leave things open when it's when it's not serialized? It's kind of funny. I, I've only written a couple of short pieces that have actually gotten out into the world, and one of them was a ghost story. I didn't know I could write a ghost story, but <laughs> a friend of mine had an anthology he was putting together, and I got invited to be a part of it. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I write science fiction, not ghost stories. But I came up with an Alibi Jones ghost story, and I ended it with one of those cliffhanger endings, because I was like, I don't know, this just seems to be the way you're supposed to end this kind of story. It wasn't something I thought about, but as I heard Karen describing that, I was like, Oh yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, that's 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 what I did. Yeah. Well, and you think about, you know, I'm you know, I I listen to Escape Pod and Drabblecast and and you know, the whole escape artist scene and and Tales to Terrify all of those. And if you think about it, short fiction really is it, it invites that leave their leave questions to be answered later by the by the reader, not not necessarily by the author. Don't make it a serialized event, but but a a, a tight tie off short story maybe isn't as satisfying mm-hmm. as as one that that lets you expand and say, "Ooh, I wonder what happens next." If left hanging in the right way, it sticks with you. Yeah, but it has to be done in the right way. If you just stop it, I mean, you don't want it to seem like, "Oh, I just chopped off the end of the story." You want to leave with a trail 
where, you know, just a trailing line at the end, which is usually when I write, a lot of times the last line of the story is the first thing that comes to me. Really? Yes. Okay. And then you work back from there? Uh, um, in about 50% of my stories, if a person cared to look, they start and end the same. Interesting. I don't know why. That's just my style of writing. But <laughs> with Jack and Jill, it literally starts and ends with the same line of dialogue. Well, and you can probably only pull that off with short fiction. Yeah. 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 I don't think long fiction needs a little more resolution. Long fiction, you know, you've just invent, invested a huge chunk of time in this book. You want to know how it ends. Sure, sure. And and you wouldn't be able to sustain, you know, a, a reader of long fiction may, might not have catch that circular nature as they read the last line and go, holy crap, that was the first line. Well, you read that first line three days ago. You probably don't remember it. So Absolutely. interesting. So, so what is the right way? Can we delve into that a little bit? I, I, and, and I realize that's kind of getting into the whole squishy, instinctive writerly bits, but maybe we can deconstruct what needs to be in place to allow that last dangling sentence to still serve as a satisfying end to short fiction. I think you need to have written the story. You know? <laughs> needs to be told. Okay. You want to leave it a little, I mean, okay, romance, you want to know they ride off into the sunset together. With horror, you, you've got the story, and then you just kind of, gosh, that's hard to think about even. You want to, if you haven't told the story, you're not done. Okay. I don't know how to describe it other than I know it when I see it. Well, maybe I know maybe it's read a story and it's it's been cut off too soon. Maybe it's it's a matter of of establishing a larger world beyond the context of the story, uh, uh, and then allowing use using that last line to lead the the reader into that larger world establishing you know the 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 life of the character their their environment their needs their desires uh, uh and not just the protag but also whatever whatever horror they are confronted with whether it's a serial killer or a supernatural horror or what uh uh and then you know in as long as that environment that 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 world is is carefully set then there's some place for the reader to go to and you can just open that door and not close it behind them. Yeah. Uh, with horror, you know, obviously our purpose is to unsettle. Mm -hmm. So we're the opposite of romance. We want to show you that all is not right in the world. And maybe the hero triumphs. Maybe he doesn't. But all is not right in the world. And all may not ever be right in the world again. But you kind of want to, well, at least sometimes leave the readers feeling like it's right for right now. Okay. But the world is not right. The world's never going to be right. So you, we have a little more flexibility to leave the reader feeling disturbed and and like, okay, they're fine now. But how do you know to when it's too much? Like you were talking about saw earlier and going, whoa, that was just a little too much. How do you know for yourself where that that limit is? That's a good question. I think it's subjective to each person. I think it's when you go from smiling. At the horror of it, smiling and cringing to just gross. I, I can't look at this anymore. Um, honestly, the problem I have with the Saw movies is I don't feel like there's story. There's not much story to them. I mean, they're not, not all of them. Some of them are pretty good. But I go from, I can watch you poke someone's eye out all day. But if that person has to poke their own eye out, there's something too psychological <laughs> about that horror that I can't handle yet. Okay. 
Have you ever written anything and gone, oh, oh, no, no, I can't do this? Oh, absolutely. Sister Alice is suitor. Yeah? Yeah. Um, you have a spinster woman who's nearing middle age. She works at a college. Her sister's married and happy and always on her about having no relationships. And she, in a drunken state, she makes a statement inviting the devil to bring her a lover, pretty much. And that night, a lover comes to her, and he's dead. And she gets pregnant anyways, and it's ah. from there. Yeah. <laughs> she wakes up the next day, and there's this, she has this vivid dream, and there's there's a corpse in her yard, and cops. And needless to say, the baby's not right. Yeah. <laughs> and neither is she. And it's extremely gory and extremely visceral and deals with one of my favorite subjects, which has always been childbirth, because it's just such a vulnerable time. Mm. And as a mother, I mean, it is such a wonderful, scary time in your life to be carrying <laughs> the life inside of you, even when it's not bothered by the dead guy in the yard. <laughs> you feel so vulnerable because there's nothing you can do. They're in there. And, you know, what if the baby wasn't right and you had a pretty good idea the baby wasn't going to be right? And yeah. Not right in the normal sense, but what if? What if it was a monster and you were carrying it? And what if you loved it anyways? You know, is that the key to horror? Do you think is 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 taking control away from characters? Yeah, I think I think the the reason for horror is just to make us feel better about the things we don't have control over. So we scare ourselves in a safe setting. You know, our most primal emotions are sex and fear, and they come from the same spot in the brain. Which is why I think extreme horror works so well, because I think sex and fear are closely tied, which, you know, you could branch it out to pregnancy on top of that. It, it all, it really fits well together. It deals with vulnerability. And what's scarier than being vulnerable? Sure. sure. I mean, think about it. When you sleep with someone, not only are you physically very vulnerable, you're naked. I mean, you're, here I am. There's, you know, <laughs> but, but then you go to sleep. Yeah. You don't, well, what if you woke up in the middle of the night and they were an inch from your face, you know, staring, <laughs> staring at you and maybe holding a knife. You never know. Sex is scary, but we do it. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Because it's fun, too. We, we need to get you and Shauna Germain on the same Skype line at some point because she her focus is always sex and death. Uh, uh, with her, with her books, and she's she she's an erotic erotica writer as well as uh, a game designer. I, I I think the two of you would would make for an awesome roundtable dialogue at some point in the future. Making a note. Well, that, sounds, that sounds very nice. I think that would be a good time. Awesome. I'm just curious, how many incidents of horror, or how many like really visceral incidents you can pack into a short story? Not very many. You want to go. I don't know. There's not a number, but obviously you want some minor stuff at first and then you want to go big at the end. Uh, if you do too much, then it just becomes gratuitous. And you don't want to, especially with extreme horror, you're always walking that line between story and gratuitous violence. And I mean, some people are going to find it gratuitous no matter what you do, because a lot of people don't care for extreme horror. But there's definitely is a fine line. And Finding your way, you know, a lot of times editors help you, you know, you write mm -hmm. the story and they're like, come on, really? <laughs> and that's happened to me plenty. I mean, I've had plenty of times 
when my editor, my personal editor says, Karen, you just threw that in there because you wanted sex in there. You just wanted a dick in the story, and that's why you put it in there. And I'm like, Busted. (laughs) I read it again, and I'm like, yeah, that's a gratuitous dick. Cut it off. Oh, (laughs) Oh, whoa. Speaking of horror. <laughs> We've gone into that whole vulnerable thing again. Yeah. Oof. So 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 you have run into instances where, you know, maybe in a first draft scenario, you have tried to put too much into a story. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Not all the time, but definitely. One strange thing about me, though, uh, like I said, I have a personal editor. I am lucky enough that my best friend went to college for it and does not use her degree. So I send her my my stories, and she edits them, and I send her fuzzy socks because we live in South Dakota, and it's cold. So I have a gal who's graduated magna cum laude, and she edits for socks. Wow. <laughs> great for me. Um, but definitely she says that when I get to the uncomfortable scenes, the sex, real explicit sex or real explicit violence, that is my most flawless writing because I push myself through it and she rarely has to edit that much. She wow. may, she can tell when I'm phoning it in. When I'm phoning in sex or violence, she can tell. But when I'm on, no, she says she never has to touch it. There's no editing needed. Wow. Where does that come from, Karen? How, 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 how did, how did, is that instinctive for you, do you think? Or, or, or a, a product of your, of the reading that you've done and, and this, the, 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 the aesthetic that you've gleaned from the, the authors who influenced you? I don't know. It comes from a dark place. Um, yeah. It's definitely, maybe, I think it's something I've picked up, definitely. But it's just something that's always interested me. But at the same time, I'm appalled by it. So I think I kind of have to push through it. I go on autopilot for those scenes, which I don't second guess myself. And mm. that's how they come out pretty clean because I just do it. I really, I don't completely subscribe to the knowledge of the vast story pool in the sky that we pluck from, but when a story's on, it writes itself. Yeah. It's a pilot. I don't think about it. I just do it. And those are usually the better ones. Is there is there a way, do you think, that you can hit that seam more times than not? Uh, uh, because, you know, every story idea has, I, I think, maybe the potential to be that. Maybe not every story idea. But, but we all hope that, oh man, I hope I, I hope I hit that zone with this story. Cause everybody knows exactly what you're talking about, Karen. Uh, uh, and, and I think all of us are looking for some way to, to, and not ensure, ensure would be awesome, but not freaking likely, uh, uh, but at least improve the odds that as we proceed in our individual stories, that we, we find ourselves in that zone. Is there anything that you do to try and, and tweak the odds for that absolutely um what works for me is first of all i'm not i'm not a plotter i don't write outlines that's some people do they do great doesn't work for me once i've written an outline the story's done the drive is gone so my biggest things are i don't talk about the story i just but i'll explain it the way i did to my daughter's fourth grade class because they have a unit on novels and that might be appropriate for us anyway so (laughs) go for it (laughs) okay my stories come, you know, and it'll be an idea. It'll be a single idea, a single dialogue, something. And I will write that down. Just just a note. And then it's like a rock. It's a big jagged rock that I tuck in back into my head again. And it'll start to tumble. It'll start to bug me. I'll think about it a little bit more, a little bit more. And it comes to me when I'm driving. You don't want to be in the car with me when that happens. <laughs> but it, 
it comes to me in odd moments and a little bit more falls into place a little bit more. And it's like a, my head's a big rock tumbler. It's, it's grinding off those edges. It's smoothing it out. And I do not sit down to write the story until it's pretty close to done until it become, it'll go from just a niggle on the back of my head, just kind of bugging me to a compulsion. I have to sit down and write the story. And I might take a few little notes on a napkin or something before that, but it's really, I try to keep it intact in my head as much as possible. And then when the story's ready, I just sit down and it pours out. The times when I try to outline or I try to take too many notes or I talk about it, I satisfy the urge to tell the story and then it goes away. Interesting. Cause I was, I was just going to observe that it, it kind of sounds like you're, you're outlining the story in your head, but yes. yeah, but, but that, that as soon as it leaves your head is, is it, it's that moment of, of creation. That's, that's all you've got. Uh, yeah. And if it leaves in the form of an outline, then you're not going to write the story. Absolutely. Absolutely. The drive to tell the story has to be the main focus for me and I let it build until I can't stand it anymore. And then I don't want to give the impression that the whole story is in my head, right? but enough of it is there that I now feel like I have to get to my computer. I'm at work talking to people and I know that half my mind's on the story. It's time to write that story. You know, I think you may have just described better than anyone else. I've ever heard the, 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 the argument for pantsing. <laughs> and and for for discovery writing and and you know because because you know th- there's obviously very clearly uh, people fall on on various lengths of that spectrum between architect and gardener or or outliner and pantser um, but I can I can totally get behind what you described there and that makes sense that that the writing of the story the translation of the idea into the words is the telling of the story for that moment and and if there's any half measure which is what an outline would be in that context then you've you've kind of pulled some of the fire out from the from the blaze. Definitely for me. I mean, like I said, you look at Jonathan Mayberry. Jonathan Mayberry is prolific as hell. I am so envious of that man. He has such self-control. He does 40 minutes of every hour writing, 20 minutes social media. He sets up a timer. He just puts out books, and he's amazing, and he is an adamant outliner. Adamant. Yeah. He gets, oh, I have a copy of the book. Because I did one of his, uh, at one of the horror conventions, I sat in on one of his talks. And it's basically an outlining book where you can outline a novel. And I have it, and it's blank. (laughs) Because I'm not Jonathan Mayberry. Um, But those who it works for, outlining is great. It keeps them on track, keeps them on focus. I cannot do it. It tells my story. If I were to fill out that book, that would be a novel that never got written, ever. All right. Hey, everybody has their own mojo when they're sitting down to do their storytelling, and it's it's absolutely right for that individual. So fabulous. Absolutely. What frustrates me is when people try to tell you that you're wrong. There's (laughs) no right or wrong. If the story gets written, if you're writing stories, you're doing it right. Preach it, sister. Well, look, friends, the, 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 the clock has, has sprouted demonic horns and, and <laughs> this, this nasty, unfleshy, creepy worms all over it. And it's shambling towards me, uh, licking its chops with a black tongue and fanged gap teeth. It's really gross. I'm going to just assume that means we're out of time and, and not that I'm about to be devoured by my clock. <laughs> so, Karen, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much. I really appreciated this. 
Oh, thank you for having me. I love it. Anytime oh. you need me. <laughs> awesome. Let's see. I have that on tape. I'm holding you to that. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, there, there was, without a doubt, there was some gold in there. There was some writerly goodness over that last 20-ish minutes or so. Uh, what, 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 what's your takeaway on this one? I had a couple things. Uh, yeah. what, I always, what I always like is is when uh, a writer, an author, tells me something I've done that I didn't know I was doing, and that was the case with the the short story endings. Yeah, I, something I had just kind of stumbled on and accidentally done was actually the way to go. And and to hear it outlined by you know a sharp mind like Karen's was 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 good because it kind of sets me on a path where I. I might know what I'm doing with it next time. Exactly. It's something that you can use now. It's not that that sort of vague, squishy, instinctive thing that you can't control. Now it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a tool. It's a tool, exactly. It's a brush stroke that you can apply. Uh that's yeah, I agree. That that kind of blew me away. Um and, and for me it was, you know, interestingly, all of the things that we're talking about are not distinctly horror related but we found them all through horror and that was the 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 argument for for discovery writing uh and i i am such an advocate of the creative process and the utter validity of every individual's creative process however it happens uh, uh, and and being able to cultivate that and explore that and understand that uh, uh, you know there's a lot of creativity that, that could almost be mysticism people don't understand uh, uh, but there are things that you can do and processes that you can engage in that attune your mind to that harmony that 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 moment of creative expression and uh, Karen's description of you know the writing of the words is the telling of the story. Understanding that, and obviously she does, and and hopefully maybe some discovery writers out there will understand it as well. That 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 telling is where the magic happens, uh, and and that was that was just kind of a profound moment for me. So I dug that. <laughs> so friends, here's here's the fact that was a that was, I'm, I'm, we're sitting here. I'm playing this sucker back. I'm I'm looking forward to editing this just so I can hear it all again. Uh, that was a great twenty esque minutes of conversation. Now here's the beauty of the roundtable: you hang out for seven days, you come back, same bat time, same bat channel. We're gonna have Karen back. We're gonna have Mike back. Of course, I'll be here, and we're gonna add a courageous guest writer to the mix with a very unique story concept i guarantee you you've we've never done anything like this on the round table before it's going to be epic it's going to be a brainstorm unlike any other i swear to you so come back in seven days and enjoy that awesomeness but that's seven days that's a long freaking time god we are so evil 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 mike Help! Help! Res- give us some some. What's the word I'm looking for? Some penance. Uh, uh, make make us less evil. Give our listeners something they can do between now and seven days from now to just make that time fly by. I wanted to come up with something different this time, so my suggestion is read something outside of your comfort zone. Ooh, yes, absolutely. Because as we found out, you know, even in extreme horror, there are tools that apply to storytelling in general. And, and it, it's entirely possible that a different genre is going to highlight or showcase that perfect writerly tool that you need. Great advice. I couldn't agree more. I will tell you, as I always do, because I'm the king of redundancy and repet- repetition, that you find what you're looking for. And I repeat it because it's true. Uh, uh, so you look for awesome. You, you look for fabulous. You look for holy crap. I didn't see that coming. 
and I promise you, friends, you will find it. We will be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frothy, and be awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.